Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Russia's invasion of Ukraine intensified this week, but Moscow's hopes of rapidly taking over the country waned as President Vladimir Zelensky said the resistance was strong. The first hours of days and days of full-scale war were extremely difficult, but we were united and therefore strong, and therefore we withstood. And it will be so, and we will continue to stand. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, again, we'll be focusing on the events in Ukraine. While Kiev has yet to fall into Russian hands at the time of recording, we'll be looking at where the fighting is going next, the Western response, and whether Putin has ambitions beyond Ukraine with our chief foreign affairs commentator, Gideon Rachman, and political and diplomatic correspondent, Laura Hughes. And later, we'll be examining the question of London Grad, whether the Johnson government needs to do more to tackle dirty money in the UK, and whether the government is falling behind on sanctions. The FT's investigation correspondent Tom Burgess will explore with Tom Tugginhat, the Conservative MP and Chair of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Thank you all for joining. The world continued to watch in horror as Russia's bombardment of Ukraine worsened this week. Cities across the country have been shelled as the Russian army struggled to make headway. And the images suggest that there's a humanitarian crisis in the making. But despite those scenes of bombed out Russian convoys, President Vladimir Putin of Russia disputed that the invasion was not going to plan and argued that his so-called special operation was about reunification. I will never go back on the statement that Russians and Ukrainians are one people. Even though that a lot of Ukrainians have been threatened and brainwashed, and of course some of them, of course, uh, consciously started following Bandera movement and other factions that were on the side of Hitler during the Second World War. Well, Gideon, it's a pleasure always to have you back on the podcast. We started that clip of Vladimir Putin there, which shows his thinking about why he invaded Ukraine, which obviously Russia is still denying is an invasion. As we're recording this on Friday morning, events are still moving very quickly. The overall picture is not going to plan of what he wanted. What's your sense of where the state of play is at the moment? Well, I think the state of play is that he had hoped for a quick victory, perhaps believing his own propaganda, both about the way in which Ukrainians or most Ukrainians would welcome Russia as as liberators, maybe overconfident in the strength of the Russian armed forces, which had done well in Syria, Chechnya, underestimating the extent of Ukrainian resistance. But unfortunately, he's not going to say, oh, well, I got that wrong, we're going home. He's obviously doubling down. He's intensifying the brutality of his tactics. They are now moving to pretty intense bombardment of urban areas, casualties arising. And I think He's all in. He's got to win as far as he's concerned. 
Below Hughes, there is this, some of these images, as I mentioned, we've seen on social media have been totally shocking. There's significant evidence, I think, of war crimes having taken place because last week, Russia said there was no civilian bombardment. This week, there's lots of evidence of schools, apartment blocks that are being attacked. What's the view of sort of Western intelligence and defense agencies about how this is going? What we're seeing is two very different sorts of assaults. So you've got the kind of high-speed destruction that is being wrought on Ukraine with rockets and artillery, really brutal bombarding of certain cities. And that's where all these horrifying images have come out. And I think that has contrasted with the sort of images we've seen of these long convoys of tanks that are slowly grinding towards the capital city in Ukraine. And that looks as though it's not quite gone to plan. FT's reported that troops have been raiding petrol stations because these tanks have been running out of petrol and and desperate for food and supplies because they're running out. This has all taken a lot longer on the ground than I think the Russians ever anticipated. And a large part of that is due to the Ukrainian resistance, which is a lot stronger than was expected. So there are very different pictures emerging of this assault. And I think given that it didn't look as though it was going to plan last week, although Putin would deny that, I think that's why we've seen such a ratcheting up of these rocket attacks. Gideon, one of the most shocking things that we've seen has been this fire at Europe's biggest nuclear power station that's in Ukraine. And as we're recording this, we don't fully know what's going on there. But it does show how indiscriminate these attacks are now. Because, you know, if you think, what is any logical reason of potentially attacking a nuclear power station, creating a disaster that would obviously rebound and affect Russia and also the whole of Europe? Yeah, obviously, you know, we all remember Chernobyl and the area around that is still contaminated and still closed. To... And will be for sort of 30, 30 odd years. Absolutely. It's apparently become quite a good nature reserve, actually. But once you unleash this kind of thing, you tip into all sorts of barbarism, some of it accidental, some of it deliberate. And the question is, are all this has been the Western response and has it been strong enough? And a lot of what's happened over the last week where we've seen more sanctions, more individuals being sanctioned by France, by the US. This was obviously a big part of President Biden's State of the Union speech. What's your view, Gideon, on the overall Western response? It's actually been stronger and more effective than I imagined it would be. And that's partly because of the action that Putin took uh, in the sense that it was so extreme, you know, the full-scale invasion I remember before the um, attack, those European diplomats, some of them very knowledgeable, who didn't think he'd go the whole way, said that he won't attack Kiev because if he does that, that's the one thing that will unite the West. But he did do that. And as a result, you've got not just the United States, but the European Union, the UK, etc. And I think that the one sanction that will have really shocked him, or at least the people around him, is the freezing of central bank assets because Russia's been essentially building up a war chest to keep itself going in times of privation. They had big foreign reserves, but they're frozen now. They can't get hold of not just the stuff in dollars, but the euros, the Swiss francs. You know, the FT carried a very interesting op-ed about how that is likely to cause bank collapses in Russia, suggesting that large parts of the economy could be reduced to barter in quite short order. So these are, are very effective sanctions. But I think it's important to bear in mind, what do we mean by effective? What are we trying to achieve? If we think this will change Putin's mind and make him reverse course, I don't think so. So we're now down to an expression of moral outrage. You know, know, there's a lot of that. People saying, you know, 
we just shouldn't be taking oil from Russia, for example. And the second is to try to devastate the economy, which I think we're quite a long way towards doing already. But then what is the secondary political effect of that? Does that lead to Putin's fall? I think, you know, it obviously increases the pressure on him. But I think in a society that was already very repressive and is moving to even heavier repression, it's not clear that it will do much more than make ordinary Russians suffer. And I think that's the key thing here, Laura, that the West is trying to get that focus on the people of Russia to sort of stimulate some kind of uprising on happiness. And some. And this was hinted at where I think Downing Street accidentally said this week that they were looking at regime change before very quickly withdrawing those kind of sentiments. Obviously, that's very provocative. The, the West is in some ways quite impotent in what it can do because, yes, you can create that economic pain. But as Gideon said for Putin, that is not necessarily going to change course in some respect, will just make him double down even more. I think that's why we're now seeing growing calls amongst some politicians, especially here in the UK, for a potential no-fly zone over Ukraine. And that has to be talked about, but it doesn't feel to me as though that's actually going to happen because a no-fly zone or any sort of intervention that could risk direct conflict with Russia would spark danger of, of, a, of a kind of much wider war. And I think that is why a lot of countries are very much opposed to that. The UK government has repeatedly said they're not even considering a no-fly zone, but I would expect those conversations to start happening given Putin and the way that he is going further than I think many could possibly have imagined. And you had the Prime Minister this week warning that what Putin is doing could have implications for the whole of Europe, there is a point where you you have to start asking, well, what next? What can we possibly do after these sanctions if they're not hitting Putin in the way that we would want? Does more military intervention have to be on the table? And I think it's very unlikely when we look back at what happened with Syria that there just doesn't seem to be the appetite for that. Well, Gideon, you'll be delighted that obviously everybody on Twitter is now venturing into your realm and becoming foreign affairs commentators. And the topic du jour has been, should there be a no-fly zone or not? And Gary Kasparov, the obviously chess champion and great critic of Putin, has said that we are already in World War Three, and the idea that you're not doing a no-fly zone to stop these bombings is not accepting the reality. But then the flip side of that is in the, the UK government, others have said that would essentially be declaring war on Russia. And that could spiral out of control very quickly. What do you feel about that? I mean, I'm an admirer of Gary Kasparov, but I'm with the cautious crowd. I mean, I think that we got through the whole of the Cold War without going to war directly with Russia for a very good reason, that both sides could destroy each other and wipe out humanity. Tragic as what's happening in Ukraine is, it's not worth risking the whole world for. Saying we're already in World War Three, that the Ukrainians say that as well. And I can understand it as a sort of rhetorical flourish that The point they're making is Putin's actions have implications for the whole world and he could go further. You know, you have to be incredibly careful in a nuclear age. And I think it's responsible not to engage Russia directly in military confrontation. Because you've got those boundaries of what NATO can and can't do. And when Putin invaded Ukraine, he would have been fully aware of how far NATO would go. That obviously Ukraine is not a member. You're not going to have that Article 5 response. Indeed, you can understand now why Ukraine wanted to be in NATO. Precisely once you're outside, you're the stray sheep from the flock that uh, the wolf can come down on. So Laura, is there anything else that we can expect to see from Western nations in response to this? Because there's obviously been a huge humanitarian response from, I think, all Western countries have put significant 
significant sums of money. Citizens have been donating significant sums of money. Obviously, there is an effort to get that into Ukraine. But is there anything down the tracks we should be thinking about what could come? Obviously, there are more sanctions. There is more military aid. Other than seeing more you know, individuals named and sanctioned in the UK, which is where I, it feels most of the political pressure is. I honestly don't think so, with the exception perhaps of us continuing to provide more humanitarian aid, more military aid to Ukraine. But, you know, the, the other kind of interesting point to make is that when doing a piece this week on, on how this has sort of changed the UK's attitude to foreign policy and speaking to experts who said, the EU has completely transformed more in a couple of days than you know the last few years. And there's been a complete transformation. You'll remember when Boris Johnson a year ago was asked by Tobias Elwood why Britain was reducing the size of its tank force when Russia was massing an army on the Ukrainian border. And Boris Johnson sort of swept that suggestion away and said that the, the kind of old idea of fighting big tank battles on the European countries was completely over. And clearly that's not true. And all of the UK's focus and attention really was about this sort of tilt to the Asia Pacific. And I think the last few weeks has completely refocused Britain's security policy. It's completely changed Germany's attitude, for example, we now are seeing this much more muscular EU, NATO, the way that the UK is considering itself within Europe. And I think that's the complete opposite of what Putin would want to see. And that growing sort of bond, actually, between the UK and the EU is, is really interesting. Liz Truss was, was a, a guest at an emergency EU Foreign Council Affairs meeting this week. And so it looks as though that relationship is strengthening that's the thing to sort of look at over the next few weeks and months and even years. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that, you know, now is not the time necessarily to rake over all the old Brexit debates. But I think a lot of the hard Tory rights cliches about the EU have slightly been turned on their head. You know, it's ineffective, it'll never get anywhere. Well, actually, you know, even the Daily Mail is now pointing out that the EU sanctions have gone much further and faster than Britain has. And frankly, they're more effective because it's a bigger economy, they matter more. And secondly, you know, in their kind of more extreme moments, some of the Tory right would compare the EU to the Soviet Union and say it was an anti-democratic force and so on. And yet you have the one of the most moving moments of this whole crisis is when Zelensky appears, you know, addresses the European Parliament and clearly sees this as democratic Europe personified and asks to join the EU. So I think it kind of to me, confirmed a lot of the parochialism of Britain's Brexit debate. You know, they didn't really grasp what the world was was all about, what Europe was was all about. But let's leave that to one side. I mean, I think it, it is now focusing British minds in the government on the fact that we have much more in common with the EU than we have with Russia and that we have to work with them. And I think that moment of Liz Truss appearing at the Foreign Council meeting was the symbol of that in a way. I remember during the Brexit debate, this whole idea of sort of the EU plus one was scotched by a lot of people. But effectively, that's where we've ended up in the Ukraine crisis. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that there's been some adjustment on the EU side. I mean, I think there was, there was a lot of residual anger towards the UK from Brexit. But I think that they also recognise that Britain is an asset in this case. And a lot of the Eastern European countries 
have been pleased by the the way Britain's got out front on, say, military support, got there faster than Germany, for example. And finally, um, Gideon Law, I want to ask you both, obviously the trajectory of the fighting will obviously continue and we can expect those shellings of the major cities in Kiev and many others will continue over the next week and the Russian will sort of, as you said, Gideon, they've got no other choice, just throw everything at it now. If that goes to the inevitable place where we think it might be and that the Zelensky government is is thrown out, is there a chance Putin will look elsewhere in Europe? That's one of the concerns, obviously. I think that chances of that happening were higher if he'd won very easily, you know, if he'd just rolled into Ukraine. But I think he's going to be bonked down in Ukraine for quite a while. But one of the things that we should perhaps be concerned about is that we think we understand what would constitute NATO going to war with Russia, for example, a no-fly zone. But we've not had a good record of understanding how Putin thinks. And Putin has consistently said NATO is an aggressor. NATO wants to destroy Russia. So he may see the threshold as lower. For example, supplying weapons to Ukraine, these big arms dumps in Poland that we've set up for them, or indeed Western volunteers flooding into Ukraine to fight for them. Perhaps he thinks these are actually Western troops, you know, that we've organized that. And Liz Trust probably didn't help by encouraging people to go and fight in Ukraine. So the dangers of an escalation that we don't anticipate are there. And Laura? Putin has talked in the past about recreating greater Russia. So, you know, with the Baltics in scope and, and part of the Balkans, I think a lot of people within the UK government are concerned that if the West fails to stop Russia in Ukraine, then the Kremlin will feel emboldened and who knows what Putin's real limit is of his territorial ambitions. He may seek to go further and and that is a huge concern to to Western officials. Gideon Laura, thank you very much. Boris Johnson pledged that the UK would leave no stone unturned in its response to the Ukrainian invasion. And there's been political unity from across British politics as seen as a very potent moment when the Ukrainian ambassador visited the House of Commons on Wednesday. I want to welcome to our gallery the Ukraine ambassador. Your Excellency, we generally do not allow applause in this chamber. But on this occasion, the House quite rightly wants to demonstrate our respect and support for your country and its people in the most difficult of times. But the Prime Minister has been personally criticised for not going far enough, not sanctioning enough individuals linked to the Putin regime, not moving quickly enough and not tackling those long-standing concerns about dirty Russian money in London. Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, defended the government's response. These measures, and each country has slightly different sanctions regimes, uh, are all uh, aimed at tightening the noose, if you like, uh, and uh, starving off the finance that is going into Putin's war machine. And I would say, although it's early and we need to brace ourselves and have stamina for this, that it has had an impact on the Russian ruble, on the Russian stock market, on the Russian central bank. Well, Tom Burgess, it's a delight to have you on Payne's Politics. Before we get into the meat of this question about sanctions, congratulations on your victory in court this week. Could you briefly explain for our listeners what happened and what it tells us about Russian influence in London? I spent a few years running around the world, the former Soviet Union and various other spots, trying to uncover corruption and trying to understand kleptocracy, right? Rule through corruption, the rule of the few gathering 
power and wealth onto themselves, often using the international oil and mining trade to do that, and parking their money in the West. And I wrote a book called Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. A couple of the oligarchs mentioned in that, they're oligarchs from the former Soviet Union. They clearly disliked this book and a London registered company that they own sued me and my publisher. What has happened is that a judge in the high court has delivered a magnificent verdict, throwing the case out and Kleptopia remains available to read and has, in what might perhaps be regarded as a known goal by the oligarchs, shot up the bestseller lists. I would make one point about this. There's a a growing sense of the danger of what's called lawfare. This is the use of legal threats and legal proceedings to prevent proper scrutiny of the rich and powerful. And in the last few days, because Putin, uh, one of the world's mega kleptocrats, has marched into Ukraine, we've suddenly become aware of the great peril that corruption and dirty money pose to freedom everywhere. Now, we need to find it. And that's a job for prosecutors and others. But also, that's a job that journalists have been doing pretty well. And what we find is that the biggest obstacle to finding and rooting out dirty money in our own economies in the West is not hit squads uh, from the GRU or cyber attacks from Putin's cyber gangs. It's, in many cases, law firms in London. But Tom Tugginhead, it's great to have you back on the podcast. So if you look at Tom Burgess's case with the influence of lawfare, and also you've expressed for quite a long time this concern about Russian individuals using the courts in London, but also the fact the money and property that they have here do you think what the government has proposed over the past two weeks goes far enough? Well, look, Seb, what Tom has exposed in his book and actually in the law courts as well is the fact that this is really, really damaging, not just because it's a form of uh, tax evasion and theft off the Russian people, because actually it's not just that problem for us. For us, it's about undermining our own security, weakening our own position and introducing fraud and corruption and perhaps even kleptocracy into our own system. And we need to fight it and fight it hard. And that's why, as you know, on the Foreign Affairs Committee that I'm lucky enough to chair, we've been calling this out for now four, nearly five years. And so I think we need to go further. Now, the announcements that the government has made are extremely welcome. But what we now need to see is the action that follows. Now, if we look at the action that's been done so far since the um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, several oligarchs have been personally named and sanctioned. And the in the Bank of England has participated in the international cooperation from central banks to squeeze the Russian central bank. What specific things, Tom Tugginhat, do you think the government should be going further on? Because I think you've looked at seizing assets without compensation, which, as the FT reported this week, is something Michael Gove and Boris Johnson are supportive of. I think we need to be looking at that immediately, because let's face it, as Tom has set out extremely clearly, this is not the assets belonging to the oligarchs. These are assets that belong to the Russian people. So what we need to be doing is thinking about this in the same way as we thought about, for example, the Estonian gold or the Albanian gold in the 1940s. We didn't return it to the thieving regimes uh, that were in place in 1945 until 1990. We returned them to the lawful regimes that emerged after the reintroduction of democracy in those countries later. And we need to look at the stolen assets, these stolen wealth, whether they're flats or whether they're yachts, whatever they happen to be, or sports fields, whatever. We need to make sure we hold them for the Russian people and return it to them. 
And Tom Burgess, what do you make of what the UK has done so far that, as I said, the government's been criticised for that very soaring rhetoric Boris Johnson initially gave about going harder and faster. And then the initial round of sanctions, I think, was widely seen to have misfired. But then they've stepped up a bit since then. Dominic Raab, as we heard earlier, said that different countries are doing different things. How do you judge what the UK has done versus other European and Western countries? There's something absolutely extraordinary in the premise of what's happening here. We just have to take one step back to recognise it. The government's position is there is a great deal of money and assets in the UK economy belonging to people who are so plugged in to the hostile, corrupt regime of Vladimir Putin that if we cause financial pain to those people, they might cause Putin to change course, or they might contribute to a change of leadership in Russia. Now, included in that premise is, of course, that we knew this a day ago, a week ago, a year ago, and we were fine with these assets here. And by extension, we continue to be fine with the same kind of dirty money if it comes from Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan, Nigeria, and so on. Tom's absolutely right. This is exactly what we were calling out in 2018. We didn't just know it a week ago. We knew it four years ago. Exactly. But in, in which case, I think we're treating the symptom here, not the cause. If you're Vladimir Putin thinking, I'd strip away all the nationalist claptrap and the, the, the kind of ethno-nationalist propaganda that he's been pushing more recently in recent years. He's a cynical, former KGB kleptocrat. That's what he is. He needs to continue his kleptocracy. If we take out a couple of let's say, proxies or allies of his kleptocratic regime, he'll find new ones because we continue to allow people to operate in our economy behind a mask, right? We continue to allow financial secrecy, which is the number one tools these kleptocrats use to stash their wealth abroad. But Tom talking at the one thing that the government has said is the legal difficulties around this. And several of your colleagues have used parliamentary privilege this week to name certain law firms that have been um, supporting these individuals who are being sanctioned. And I think the people I've spoken to at senior levels in Whitehall say that this threat of getting tied up in legal knots is A, one of the reasons why the UK hasn't named and targeted more people, but B, why there are concerns in government lawyers about seizing the assets of, of sanctioned individuals do you buy that excuse? I do understand that the ability to be tied up in knots by law firms is one of the factors that has delayed Whitehall. But what that tells me is we need to be clear about the laws we write and make sure that they are clear so that the loopholes are avoidable. Because Tom's point is completely correct. What we're seeing in Russia is not a state that has a corruption problem. It's completely the reverse. The oligarchs have taken over the state. It has been nationalized. So what we're seeing is the organs of the state are organs of crime. Putin isn't running a government. He's running a criminal conspiracy that is using a government and a state to enrich itself and to leverage power around the world. And that's what we've got to fight. We've got to stop pretending that there's one or two bad apples that we can root out with one or two actions and realize this is a full state operation because the state itself has been taken over by a criminal conspiracy. That's so well put. And I just to go back to what you said at the beginning about enforcement now, we can write all the sanctions lists we want. We've already got pretty good statutes against corruption and money laundering, but they are not very well enforced. And surely another big part of the response, if we're thinking big here, if we're thinking we actually do want to change London's reputation as the global centre for dirty money, not just as regards Russia, but as regards dirty money from everywhere then it comes down not to sanctions, which are administered 
politically, but to law enforcement, right? Protecting the rule of law itself, massively boosting the resources of the agencies like the Serious Fraud Office, National Crime Agency, that are the front lines of our protection against dirty money. That is exactly right, because actually the defence of the United Kingdom is not just uh, soldiers in Poland or submarines uh, with a nuclear deterrent. It's defending ourselves, defending our democracy, defending the integrity of our state, defending our people against the fraud and corruption that is undermining us, is you know inflating asset prices, forcing British people into difficult housing situations, corrupting our sports, corrupting various other forms of our professional services. And we can fight this. You know, in real terms, I know the size of the Russian industry in the UK is large. Of course it's large. It's hundreds of billions of pounds. But in terms of the city, in terms of the UK economy, it's not that big. There are a few companies which are going to suffer very greatly because we close this down. But most businesses in the UK won't even notice it. And those companies that are so in bed with these oligarchs, well, frankly, they have questions to answer. Well, one element of London that is often questioned is also the Conservative Party. And there's been a lot of scrutiny over the last week with Russian-linked individuals who's given over £2 million to the party since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister. And this was highlighted in comments on the BBC by the EU's Franz Timmermans. The UK is now following our lead, and I'm sure they will continue to follow the lead because the pressure of uh, the public opinion in in the UK is very clear about this. And I think, you know, even parties uh, who accepted uh, funding from oligarchs should understand uh, that they, you know, they they need to change course. Well, Tom Burgess, do you think there are genuine legitimate questions here for the Conservative Party about the influence of Russian-linked individuals who are giving money? It goes for all the political parties, actually. It goes across the board, but they are, I would say, most pressing for the Conservative Party because it's in power and it tends to be in power. There are a number of individuals who have given very, very large sums to the Conservatives, and those large sums were made in kleptocracies, Russia and their neighbours. Now, it can't be counted. It's very hard to define the influence that this kind of money would have. But for me, there's a kind of kleptocratic norm, if you like, right? That money made in kleptocracies functions differently from money made in democracies. It's trying to amass power and wealth for the few. That's how it works, whether it be by using law firms to silence critics or buying up bits of universities to launder one's reputation. And the danger is that if political parties absorb great fortunes made in very corrupt places, made by people who have benefited from access to, for instance, the Putin regime or other similar regimes, that that starts to change how those political parties work so that they don't serve the interests of the many of those who vote for our government, but actually of the interests of a kind of international kleptocratic elite. Now, obviously, the Conservative Party will point out that all these individuals are British citizens and that all laws have been followed and all transparency requirements met. But Tom Tuckinhat, is this something that you're concerned about? You know, Labour has called on the Tories to give back the money given by these individuals. Do you think it should do that? Should it not accept them from these sorts of people in the future? Well, look, Tom's absolutely right that this is something that all political parties have to deal with. And you know, I've been extremely clear on this, even in my own party, that just because somebody is allowed to donate money doesn't mean you have to accept it. You don't. There are plenty of people in the United Kingdom who are perfectly legal sources of money from whom I would not accept uh, money. And I'm sure the FT wouldn't accept advertising and various other people wouldn't accept invitations. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And a lot of these cases are judgment calls. But what is politics about except 
taking judgment calls on behalf of the British people. And on behalf of the British people is the fundamental element of that sentence, because what we need to be doing is making sure we are always representing the interests of the British people. And for us, for all of us, that means fighting corruption, defending our interests and standing up for our interests around the world, not seeing money coming through our country, through our jurisdictions, through our political circles, and being used to influence and shape events that undermine us around the world. Tom, just on that point about the, the practicalities of how money moves into political parties, and this actually came up in, in my Kleptopia case this week in the High Court about, is it the, the judge really picked up on it, on, on corporations, corporate persons being used essentially as a front or a disguise or a shield or in some cases a weapon for real human beings operating in the world. And I just wonder what you think about this practical suggestion you sometimes hear of looking again at the, the rule that says that, yes, you can make a donation to a political party if you're a UK citizen. I mean, that's obviously quite right. But what about this rule that says you can make a donation to a political party if you own a UK company, which anyone in the world can do in 15 minutes? Well, it depends what the company is, doesn't it? Because this is where a foreign beneficial ownership rule is so important, because it's not the company, it's who owns the company, it's who controls the company. The, the genius of the 1700s, 1800s was to create the legal fiction that companies are people. Companies aren't people. Companies are a collection of people, if you like. They're a collection of real individuals who get together and share in a certain way an interest and the opportunity to invest and, and, and seek profit and reward. That's great. But what we need to be doing is focusing on who the individuals are behind it. And for some companies, that's absolutely fine. And for others, I'm afraid it isn't. And we can't allow the fiction of the company being British to cover up for the reality of the individual behind it being a problem for the UK. And finally, Tom Burgess, if you were putting forward a checkpoint list to the government to try and solve this issue and address it in the coming weeks, give us what would be the top items on it, the actions that you could take that would have an immediate impact. There would be one item on it, Seb, and one alone, which is to eradicate financial secrecy. Look at it the other way around. What does Putin want? That's the way to think about these things. What does your opponent want? Putin and other kleptocrats like him, the greatest gift that has ever been given to them, and no one ever voted for it, no one ever legislated for it, it's a sort of monstrous offshoot of the, of the global financial system, is financial secrecy. You can participate in our economy behind a mask using a front company from Gibraltar or the British Virgin Islands or Trust in the Cayman Islands or whatever it might be. You can shift wealth around the world without your fingerprints on it. If you were a kleptocrat designing a Western system that you could shift your wealth into, that's what you'd want. There are all manner of legal techniques that could be used to break open the secrecy, but that's it. If you're not dealing with that, you are just dealing with symptoms, not the disease. And finally, Tom Tuggenhat, do you agree with that? I do. The, the point about openness is essential. And the second one is resourcing our enforcement agencies. Tom's already spoken about national crime agencies, serious fraud office. We need to make sure they're properly resourced because... As Tom demonstrated, the alternative is to have an arms race uh, with people who can put millions and millions of pounds into legal fees when our agencies and our enforcement officers are uh, hamstrung by budgets that are much more limited. Well, Tom and Tom, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then yes, you could subscribe and you can find us through all the usual channels. You receive your podcast to have episodes on your phone every Saturday morning. We also like positive reviews and nice ratings. 
Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next week, thanks as always for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.